We're going to look at the passage that the family ministry team so helpfully introduced to us today. And uh, we're going to look at other passages in the Bible. It may not be possible for us to show all of those passages on the screen. And so if you're online or here in-house, I'd encourage you to grab a Bible and make sure that you follow along. And if you are online, then if you've not already sent out a little reminder to your friends uh, by sharing from Facebook Live or by texting as you're watching on our website to encourage people to join us and to share in this time together. We'll read together from Luke chapter 22. Then, seizing Jesus, they led him away and took him to the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance, but when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, this man was with him, but he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. Man, I'm not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, for he's a Galilean. Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. So we have this story very familiar, a story that anyone who has been involved in Christianity at any point in their life is deeply familiar with. A story that connects the narrative for us between this moment when Jesus is praying in the garden, a moment that we've looked together at in these last few weeks, when Jesus is praying in the garden that the Lord, the Father, would take away this cup of suffering from him, he's surrounded by his disciples who are praying at a distance. He is arrested by the group of soldiers who are accompanying the officials from, from the high priest. He's betrayed by his friend with a kiss. And Peter attempts to protect Jesus by taking the sword hidden in his clothing and striking one of the servants of the high priest. He goes for the jugular and just misses, taking off his ear. Jesus rebukes him and tells him to put the sword away, heals Malchus's ear, and submits to the arrest. The disciples are largely scattered at this point. We know that they run off in different directions. One young man, we're told in Mark's gospel, is struggling with one of the soldiers and his nightshirt that he's wearing. Perhaps this is Mark himself who writes the gospel. The nightshirt that he's wearing is pulled from him and he runs naked from the garden back to his home. There's great drama in this moment. 
And as the disciples are scattered, two only are left to follow Jesus back to the house of the high priest, Peter and John. John, who we're told in the Gospels is known to the household, perhaps he supplied salt or dry fish to that household, we don't know, but certainly he's known to the household. He gains entrance immediately after Jesus has been taken into the home and he says that Peter should be allowed in too. John, no doubt, continues to to go closer and listen in on the conversation between Jesus and the uh, the religious officials who are seeking to demonstrate that Jesus is a blasphemer and worthy of death. And perhaps it's John who gives us that eyewitness account and Peter remains in the courtyard warming his hands on a charcoal fire kindled in the center of the courtyard. And as we know, he's challenged on three occasions and maybe channeling his surfer dude kind of approach to things, he he just says, man, I don't know him. It always surprises me that he says it like that. It's a kind of a weird thing to do, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? I, I, I don't know. Maybe it's after walking on water, he just thought he needed to be that kind of surfer kind of character. But, um, but he, says to, he says to the people who challenge him that he doesn't know Jesus. Now, there are all kinds of ways that you can look at the psychology of this event. And we could perhaps suggest that Peter is afraid. He's seen that Jesus is being taken away and that's a very serious situation. Personally, I don't think Peter is a man who quickly falls into the territory of fear. I think he's much more likely to fall into the territory of self-determination, independence and bravado. This is a man who asked Jesus if he could walk on water. This is a man who's taken a sword out from his clothing and attacked one of the servants, cutting off his ear just a few moments ago. And here he is in the courtyard. What's he there for? He's looking for a way to help Jesus. Because from the very first time he heard Jesus say, I'm going to die Peter felt that there was something in him that rebelled against it. There in Caesarea Philippi, when he recognized that Jesus was not only the Messiah, but the Son of God, and proclaimed and confessed it to all who would listen. And Jesus said, and because of this, you will be called Peter. I'll give you my name, the rock, and I'll give you my key to the kingdom. And then he goes on, Jesus goes on to talk about his death in Jerusalem in the coming months. And Peter rebukes him and says, no, Lord, this is not necessary. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You see, there's something in Peter that doesn't want Jesus to fulfill his destiny if his destiny means death. And after the third denial, perhaps Jesus, taken from one interview, maybe with Annas or Caiaphas, or maybe on his way to Herod, we know that he's 
that he's, um, he's tested and tried on several occasions by different, um, different interrogators that particular evening. On one of those occasions when Jesus is passing through the courtyard or, or perhaps on the balcony between the upper rooms where, where the wealthy people live in such a home, the cock crows and Jesus hears it and looks into the courtyard directly at Peter. And Peter looks into the eyes of his master, his rabbi, and knows what it is that he's done. Jesus said, before the rooster crows, three, before the rooster crows you will deny me three times. And he goes out and weeps bitterly. Well, my question for you today is, why did Peter weep bitterly? What was it in the look of Jesus that prompted that reaction? Paul, who has seen Jesus face to face, says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, he says, we see the glory of God in the face of Christ. If we're, if we're to understand what it is that the New Testament and the Holy Spirit authoring the, the New Testament through the writers of the New Testament is attempting to teach us this morning, we need to dig down here. We need to excavate here. What is it that Peter saw in the face of Jesus that caused him to weep bitterly. The glory of God in the face of Christ simply means this, that the doxa, the glory, in Hebrew, the kavod of God means the felt, the weight, presence of God. When, you, when you're in worship and you feel the presence of God, that's the glory of God, that's the kavod, it's the weight of God's presence. In fact, it is so clear that, that face and presence and glory and presence and face are all connected, that they are synonyms of one another in the Old Testament. And when you go and seek the face of God, you seek his presence. And when you seek his presence, you receive his glory. Jacob, the first to deal with this understanding in detail was on his way home from the land of Laban. He had now two wives. He had expected to come back with one. He now had two wives, Rachel and Leah. He had family and flocks and people and servants. The Lord had prospered him as well as frustrating him in this land in which he had sojourned. And as he comes back into the territory of his father, now overseen by his elder brother, whose birthright he had stolen with a bowl of soup. When he comes back into the territory, he, he demonstrates to his brother that, that he is submitting to his brother. 
And he sends all of his wives and his flocks and his family and his servants. He sends them ahead of him to say to his brother, these are all yours. They're no longer mine. And he comes to the brook of Jabbok. And all night he wrestles with a man who will not let him go. And Jacob, because he is the struggler, the grasper, that's the word, that's the meaning of his, of his name, he holds on knowing that somehow his destiny is settled in this moment. And as the first glimmers of dawn appear on the horizon, the one with whom he wrestles says, let me go. The light is coming. And Jacob says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. He knows that he's in the presence of God. And God reaches out and touches him in the hip. And from that moment, he will limp for the rest of his life. Never trust a leader that doesn't limp. And there in the brook, in the morning light, Jacob receives his blessing. And he names that place Peniel, the face of God. And so we have the face of God, which, who knows whether this is going to work or not. Oh, yeah, it does. Well, it works with the finger, but it doesn't work with other things. This is really going to look like a spider. So face could lead someone to fight. It could lead us to fight like, like Jacob. Is that why Peter felt so overwhelmed with emotion? That he, that he wanted to continue to fight? That he wanted to continue to wrestle? He saw the glory of God in the face of Christ and, and he, he wanted to continue to wrestle and was overwhelmed with the emotion of it and, and, and went away and wept bitterly. Is that it? I don't think so. Of course, fight is not, only, is not the only reaction that we have when we encounter God in this way. Sometimes it's flight. Sometimes we're frozen. If it's frozen, then you just have to let it go. But, but, but in the fight, in the fight, we find ourselves wrestling with an opponent that we cannot defeat, of course. But there are other places in the Old Testament. In Numbers chapter 6, it says, it says in verse 22, the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron and his sons, this is how you are to bless the Israelites. Say to them, the Lord bless you. 
and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. In the presence of God, in the, in the place where we encounter the face of glory, there is blessing. As God turns his face towards us and illuminates our life, we are aware that we're in a place not only of holy connection, but of divine protection. And more than anything, we're in the place of favor. Of course, favor can, can elicit frustration because we want to know favor again. Is that the reason that Peter is overwhelmed with emotion? Because the favor that was once extended to him is now frustrated and, and he feels the emotion of it and goes away and weeps bitterly. I think not. There is a third way in the scriptures in which the face of God is articulated in its granular meaning to us. Exodus 33 says this, Moses would go into the tabernacle before the Lord and meet him face to face and speak with him as a man speaks with a friend. As a man speaks with a friend. I think friendship is the thing that is on Peter's mind right now. He's just heard these words, John tells us. No longer do I call you servants. Now I call you friends. John 15, verse 15. Look at the passage. No longer do I call you servants. You're not simply disciples hanging on my every word. Jesus says, I have revealed to you everything that I have heard from my Father and I've made it known to you. And so you and I have an equality of access to God. Imagine what it is that Jesus is saying. He's saying that you, because of what I'm doing right now and what I'll do in the next few hours, you will have equality with access to God himself. I've made known everything to you that my Father has made known to me. I have stepped from glory. 
I have emptied myself and I have lived as a suffering servant, receiving from the Father and only doing what I see the Father doing. And as I've walked this way, I've taught you everything. And now you have access to him in your own right because of the way that I've made for you in my life and in my death and in my soon coming resurrection. No longer do I call you servants, now I call you friend. Greater love has no one than this, that he lays down his life for his friends. Those words must have been ringing in the ears of all of the disciples. And Peter, Peter wanted to go and help his friend. It was out of friendship. It was out of filial love. It was, it was his desire to be alongside his friend. The same desire that was in John that, that led him the same path. It was his desire to be with his friend and he was going to do his best for his friend. He was going to protect him with his sword and strike off the ear of that man who wanted to take him away. He was going to stand with Jesus to the very end. And he was going to, he was going to set aside all of the boundaries necessary to be a friend to Jesus. Even if it meant denying that he knew him. Because he's going to find a way to get him out. Jesus described friendship like this. He said, you will be my friend if you do what I command. Now, it's an interesting word, this word command, because it kind of gets us going in the wrong direction unless we understand the meaning of the word. In Greek, entole. And the, the, the meaning of the word command used by Jesus here is a command that is, if you like, a prescription for a culture in which we live rather than a rule by which we govern our lives. Now, it's tremendously important that we understand that. These are not rules that somehow are replacing other rules that have been fulfilled in the life and death of Jesus who is now the fulfillment of the law. No, these are not other rules that are added after Jesus has fulfilled the law. No, these are another way of being. Jesus has fulfilled the rules, the regulations of the law in himself and he's paid the penalty for our inability to keep them. And he's given us the spirit of holiness who lives within us and who causes us to have the, the law of God written on our hearts and to be able to walk with the spirit and therefore not gratify the, the desires of the sinful nature. When Jesus says, when Jesus says, You'll be my friends if you do what I command. He means this. I've made a way for you. I've made a place for you at my side. And there is a place that's been prescribed by my nature and by my behavior. My nature is to love. 
and my behavior always reflects love. And Jesus says, I want you to live in this culture of love. I want you to accompany me. And as you accompany me, I want you to know that there is great confidence in accompanying me because you are now my friend. It's a deeper meaning of the word friend. In, in many ways, it's, it's a meaning that parents discover when they have adult children who become their friends. There is a moment when your children come to a place of equality with you. You've made a way for them. And one day they'll come into the culture that you have established and they'll meet you and greet you as an equal. And they'll be your friend. It's a deeper expression of the beginning of the process of discipleship because the beginning of the process of discipleship is a desire to be a friend of Jesus. And of course, we say that to the children and the children hear it and they respond and so do we. And those friends become followers and those followers become family because as we follow, we realize we're following the Son of God and the Son of God gives us his identity and we become the children of God. And so friend becomes follower, becomes family, and in the family we grow up to maturity and become a friend again. And here is the moment when Peter's decided what friendship means. He's going to try and spring Jesus. He's going to try and get him out of there. But you see, it's his definition of friendship, not Jesus' definition of friendship. Because Jesus says, you'll be my friend if you live in the culture that I've established by my prescription, by my command. It's a culture of love, which means, Peter, you surrender. Which means, Peter, you submit. Which means, Peter, you sacrifice. And he looks at his friend. And Peter sees the eyes of a friend. And he sees the eyes of a friend who's going to lay down his life for him. And it breaks him. When Jesus is raised from the dead, Peter is all at sixes and sevens. He, he doesn't know what he's doing. He hears from the women that Jesus is alive, that he's come out of the grave. He thinks they're crazy. He runs with John to the grave. John's faster than him, so, so he gets there before him, looks in and sees the folds of the, of the grave cloths lying in their folds and, and he knows that somehow the body has risen through the clothes and he, he knows and sees and believes and Peter comes in and says, he's gone, he didn't see anything and he rushes off and says, well, where has he gone? 
And then later, with all of the doors and the windows closed, Jesus appears among them and says, peace be with you. Because they're terrified. But still, Peter is not settled in his heart. Jesus says, go ahead to Galilee and I'll see you there. So they go back to Galilee. Peter, he doesn't know what he is. He, he, is he a follower? Is he a friend? Or is he a fisherman? I know. I'm not a friend because I failed Jesus. I'm not a follower because I stopped doing the thing that Jesus asked me to do. Maybe I'll fish again. And so in John 21, he says, I'm going fishing. And the disciples who are with him say, Okay, well, we'll go too. And they spend the whole night fishing and there's no fish. And something in the back of Peter's mind begins to emerge as a memory. There was a moment, wasn't there, when we fished all night and there was no fish in the morning. And wasn't it that day that we saw Jesus and as he's thinking that, he looks at the beach and Jesus says, Children! Now, the New Testament translators generally translate that word friends. It's not friends. It's children. Paideia. He says, children, have you caught no fish? And they look at each other and say, who's this dude? Children? You need to throw it on the other side, and they throw it on the other side, and there's a huge haul of fish, 153 large fish. I've seen one of those large fish in the Sea of Galilee. It's a big fish. It's not Peter's fish. It's a huge thing. 153, you'd never get that many in a boat unless you were about to sink. John says it's the Lord Peter puts his coat on, jumps in the water. He doesn't want to greet Jesus naked. He comes to the beach. There on the beach is the only other occasion in all of the New Testament, in all of the Bible, when anthrotokos is used. Anthrotokos, charcoal fire. There's a charcoal fire in the courtyard of the high priest where he warms his hands. And there's a charcoal fire on the beach where Jesus is cooking them breakfast. And he sees the charcoal fire and no doubt the pit in his stomach opens up because he's gone from the first day that he followed when there was no fish all night and Jesus gave them a miraculous catch of fish, he goes from the first day that he followed to the last day that he followed when he denied his Lord three times. In a moment, it's all telescoped together. Now, I hope you're listening, friends, because this may be a moment of breakthrough for you. Jesus steps away and says, Peter, do you sacrificially love me? The word in Greek is agape, or as the English say, agape. Do you agape me? He says, Lord, you, 
you know. What does Peter say? Does he say, Lord, you know that I agape you? He doesn't say that. You see, the thing that's in his mind is the thing that he's failed in. He says, Lord, you know I'm your friend. Now, in English, both words are translated as love. Lord, you know that I'm your friend. Well, make sure you do the children's work when it reopens. Feed my lambs. They're the first priority. Peter, do you love me sacrificially? Lord, you know I'm your friend. Then take care of my sheep. Come into the culture of my household again. And take on the role of the least of the household, the shepherd boy. And be a shepherd as I've been a shepherd. And then Jesus does something that Jesus is allowed to do. He turns the tables on Peter. And instead of talking about sacrifice, he simply says this. Peter, are you my friend? Now again, in English, it's hard to translate because agape and filio, they, they're both love. But Jesus changes the word and, and adopts the word that Peter's been using. And he says, are you my friend? He says the same to us today. He says, I've prescribed for you. A culture of love. I've prescribed for you. I've, I've created for you. I've commanded for you. A culture where you're invited as an equal. You have equal access to the throne of grace and to the father of lights. He says, are you my friend? Peter, we're told by John, is torn inside. It's the same reaction as the bitter weeping on the night that he betrayed Jesus. He's broken. And he says, Lord, you know everything. You define my life. You create the culture. I give in I'm not going to keep my culture. I'm not going to keep my life. I'm not going to do it my way anymore. Lord, you know I'm your friend. Then feed my sheep. 
Peter, there was a time when you did whatever you wanted to do. But a time is coming when you will have to submit and you will be led to a place that you don't want to go and your arms will be stretched out. And Peter looks over his shoulder and sees John walking on the beach just at a distance, listening carefully. And he says, what about, what about him? And Jesus says, I'm just talking to you right now, Peter. That's what Jesus is saying to you right now. He's not talking about other people in this room. He's talking to you. Are you his friend today? Will you accompany him? Will you allow him to set the culture, to change the way? Will you be his friend? Finally, he said to Peter, follow me. So if you want to know what I think Peter saw in the face of Christ, yes, he saw the glory of God, and it was the glory of God in the face of Christ, his friend. And what a joy it is for us today to know that the Lord of heaven invites us to be his friend that we have equal access with him to the Father's throne. That you and I get to live in the culture that Jesus establishes, that we accompany him in the desire that he has to change the world. And he looks to us, he looks to us to do it with him. Not for him, but with him. And so will you at home, in here, will you accompany Jesus from this place today and walk with him? Because Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread and said this is my body which is given for you take this in remembrance of me if you'd find your little communion cups Darling, I wonder if you could give me one by any chance. Yeah, yeah, it's good. Thank you. Oh, slightly broken. So let's do that together. If you're at home, then join us as we share in this moment.
In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, drink this all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant. The new relationship that exists between you and I. Where family become friends. It's the new covenant in my blood which is given for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Lord Jesus, we're humbled, Lord, to a point of brokenness that you, the Lord of heaven, would ask us, are we your friends? Lord, it's, it's much easier for us to be followers because you have all the responsibility and we have none. But you give us equal access to the Father and so invite us to share in the responsibility. And Lord, we thank you that this is not an irksome burden, but a joyful and light yoke because we're yoked with you, our friend. Lord, we pray this day and through this week that we'd walk with you in the culture of love that you have established. Choosing not to hate or to hurt or to hold things against other people. Thank you, Lord, that you call us into that culture and invite us to walk with you. Lord, we choose that path today. And we're overjoyed and humbled that you would invite us there, Lord. Now, for some of you, this is a moment when you need to surrender afresh because this is a moment when your plans come to an end and God's plans start afresh. So I'm going to give you opportunity. There's plenty of ways that you can stay socially distanced and come and respond at the front here. Just begin to move if that's what God is saying to you. And online, we're opening the Zoom room. We've had all kinds of technical things going on, but we're going to overcome those in the name of the Lord and give everybody the opportunity to respond. But I'm going to wait for a moment because I know that for some of you this is a moment for you to say afresh to the Lord or maybe for the first time. I'm walking with you as a friend, Lord, and I'm giving up my way and I'm taking on yours. So if that's you, then you come. I'll wait for you.
right here. Here's the place. Right here. Plenty of distance between you and other people. But right here is where the Lord wants you. And I'm going to give that moment to you. I'm going to honor you with that moment and let you come. And the thought that's going through your mind right now is, I don't need to move to do this. <laughs> but truly, our body expresses what our heart and mind wants to say. And so I'm going to give you that moment to come and say, I have been pursuing an agenda that is mine. It's not necessarily a bad one, Lord, but it's been mine. surrendering to yours and if that's you then you come and if you're at line online if that's you then go to the zoom room pray for that moment of surrender and humility to be released in the hearts of those Lord who hear your call to a deeper walk today your Lord we're not and we surrender to you